Welcome to Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pascal, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And we are in week 50, the Ooh. final three weeks are coming up. And, um, and hopefully this week uh, was a great reading through uh, Zechariah and some Revelation. Uh, always fun to be heavy, image-rich uh, books like these. And so yeah. uh, we pick up sort of the fourth vision and sort of all these night visions that Zechariah has. And in this one, we uh, no longer have objects, but have a person. Uh, we have a, a man named Joshua or Yeshua in Hebrew. And so um, who's a high priest who's already been introduced to us in Ezra and Nehemiah and is working um, the temple uh, as it's being rebuilt in Jerusalem. And Zechari- uh, Jeshua here is accused by Satan or the adversary and sort of this um, almost like this heavenly court kind of moment. Uh, but he ends up being or sort of acquitted and his subsequent sort of cleaning that happens after that sort of picture of, of God's willingness to forgive and cleanse the community of God. So um, this, this idea that they're going to reestablish temple services, there's going to be this renewal um, with Yeshua as sort of this picture of representing the people uh, in the process. And there's a resumption of temple worship here um, that will lead to this, and connected to this coming of this branch, um, which we've introduced, been introduced before to the idea of the branch, which is often off the Davidic line, this idea that there's going to be some King that's going to come again. Um, and, and so we get this picture as that all happens as the new King comes, all this sort of stuff, this, uh, we're left with this, uh, almost Edenic, um, picture at the end. Like it feels like Eden again, where people are sitting under their vines and they're eating fruit and, and it's sort of this peaceful state. And yes, there's connections all over between Yeshua, which is literally the Hebrew name of Jesus. Um, and, uh, this branch and him as a coming King and ultimately ushering in, uh, sort of the, the new restored Eden state. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really important passage. So, yeah, pause for a second and picture what's happening here. You have Joshua, the high priest, representing Israel, and he stands in his representation of the sin of Israel in his filthy garments, and Satan is standing ready to accuse him. But then Joshua is rescued by God himself and given clean and pure clothes. So, of course, this represents for us, with a messianic understanding, the righteousness that comes from Christ. And like Chris said, Joshua is the same name as Yeshua, which is the same name as Jesus. So there's some very clear messianic connections here pointing us to this future Savior that would come. Yeah, it's almost like a a little gospel lesson tucked into Zechariah. And then we're given a, a vision of a golden lampstand, which uh, should draw us into a, a very much a temple idea, which had literally a golden lampstand with seven lamps on it. And so, um, and and but in this one, uh, when when normally the priests would operate and run the lampstand, this one is sort of fed by these bowls of oil that um, it, that there's no human agency uh, in the priesthood now needed in the sort of this future temple picture, uh, but there's bowls that that yield a sort of ceaseless su- uh, supply of oil, and so. I think the picture here, which is even stated, the sort of not by night, might, not by power, but by my spirit, the sort of picture that God's going to rebuild the temple and and by His own spirit work, His own power, He's going to um, provide for it. Uh, that we're not going to need the same sort of human priesthood that we had before. And um, we we hear of Zerubbabel also kind of participating in this rebuilding of the temple, uh, and then we're kind of left with the idea of two witnesses again, which uh, as we talked about last week in Revelation. Um, but the language there is also messianic. They are the two anointed. Um, and so, uh, that could be also not just Moses and, uh, um, 
in Elijah, like we saw uh, in Revelation, but even this idea of Jesus, who's the anointed one, and the Holy Spirit, who is the anointer. And so, um, yeah, it's it's a pretty important, once again, this this picture of what is coming. And as we think about this idea of temple and the idea of building and rebuilding the temple, we know through the New Testament that the church is the temple of God and that it is not built by the work of priests, but by the work of the great high priest, and we are indwelt by the Spirit. So again, we see this future understanding of what it means when God says, by my Spirit, in in talks, in context of a temple being rebuilt. And then we see uh, the picture of the sort of flying scroll show up, God's word, God's um, um, truth coming uh, onto the scene. Uh, and uh, we see the four horns that kind of also speak to God's pronouncement of doom towards these nations that have um, attacked the Israelites who have made sort of God's people pretty miserable in this process. And um, and also that the covenant curses are going to be enacted, that breaking the covenant comes with the curses, which goes all the way back to Deuteronomy once again. Yeah, and even back to Genesis in some regard. Um, And we see here that specifically the sins of theft and deception are pointed out. Israel is, again, this, remember the beginning of Zechariah talks about us not behaving like, or talks about these people not behaving like their fathers. Are they going to be different? And then we think of the theft and deception that came from the fathers in the previous generations. What is it going to look like for this new generation? And God's going to do the work of uh, removing idols from their presence, which was the sort of the seventh vision here, the sort of basket um, that's going to carry uh, this feminine idol of some sort to be symbolically exiled back to Babylon um, while the people are cleansed of their idol worship. And so God's going to do the work, the, the cleansing, intervening work here. Yeah, we see him removing the wickedness that used to abide in Israel and making it a place that's set apart for his glory and his name. And we wrap up with a sort of four flying chariots uh, again, which should be a callback to the beginning of uh, these eight uh, images, uh, God's power over the nations, and it kind of forms an inclusio. It starts with that and ends with that, and uh, sort of the focus on God's kind of bringing peace to the north, uh, direction of really where the majority of tax of Israel have come from. I think also what we see here is these four horsemen going out on patrol to conquer the ends of the earth. So we see God extending his reign beyond just the nation or the region of Israel, but to all places of the earth. And then following those eight visions, we get this sort of closure section describing really the, the crowning of Yeshua as the the Messiah, the, the anointed leader. And there are certainly ways Jewish people might have interpreted this with Yeshua and Zerubbabel as sort of the, the roles of authority and they're the two trees that are like olive trees and uh, other images throughout this text. But <clears throat> it fits to me more way more naturally with, with Jesus, the King of Kings, since Yeshua and Zerubbabel never really had a throne or uh, that kind of authority. They were always under Cyrus's authority. But um, with Jesus sort of being the, the truly enthroned one, um, albeit a crown of thorns in a more spiritual role as a king of kings, but um, then then a social political role. But but the picture here, I think, would point us to uh, not truly Yeshua as the fulfillment of this, but Jesus Yeshua um, as a fulfillment. And this promise of peace comes, and we see that as well through Jesus, and that he is bring brought us eternal peace but also he promises to the disciples in that farewell discourse at the end of john my peace i leave with you my peace i give to you um but all of this is emphasized that it is conditional this will happen if they diligently obey the voice of the lord their god and we hear about a fast uh, on the fifth month which um there was a, a start of a fast that really existed uh, when uh, Israel fell. So this is sort of a fast after the destruction of the temple. And the people really want to know now that we're kind of being restored, like, do, do you still need us to fast? Or should we still fast on the fifth and, and ultimately the seventh month? 
And God asked them if their fasting really did, did them any good, uh, since it wasn't done from the heart. And what he really wants for them is that for them to be just and compassionate with one another, that, that what they've been fasting, what they've been doing are just empty sacrifices. And, and so, um, which was their problem before there was definitely indictments in the past that they kind of went through the motions and God's pointing out again, like even, even your fast, as much as you might've been seeking me was not, not done from a heart and the problem still exists, which is part of the narrative of Zechariah that like, it's great to return and it's great to be excited, but unless there's a new heart, the, the pattern's just going to continue. Yeah. This is not a new reminder. It's been a reminder throughout everything we've read, especially in the Old Testament, that religious observance without loving from the heart is empty um, and it's worthless. But God says that he's coming back for good. Uh, There's some uh, moment in the future that he is setting up shop uh, more permanently uh, in that their their brokenness that marked the previous time will no longer be there. And and so uh, old and young and everybody can can be outside and flourish. There there won't be attacks on the streets and things like that that existed before. And um, but there are still some conditions somewhat set up in this throughout and and they have to speak truth and act justly. And um, and, and if they do so, the fasting will be turned to joy and then all the nations will come even even grabbing the cloaks of the Jews and begging them to come with them and so this is uh, certainly a, a beautiful forward looking um, idea but at the same time there's sort of these conditions that are thrown in uh, throughout that 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 should um, make us pause or at least be uh, thinking through how, how our actions affect um, um, our, our identity in some ways I love the image and the picture here that we get of wholeness and restoration is coming to not just individuals, but entire communities where old men and old women shall sit in the streets and they'll also have streets that are filled with boys and girls. God is renewing his promise of presence with his people, not an individual, but an entire community of people, which is how God designed us to operate. And then we get uh, sort of the the two bonus oracles. The the as the outline uh, that we covered when we started this, uh, and the first is really a poem of God as a conquering style war- warrior. Uh, God swearing to destroy the nations around Judah, uh, even the wealthy and powerful ones like Tyre. It definitely feels like a, a throwback uh, almost to. Um, um, Exodus and Song of Moses. This very much idea of God as the warrior. Yeah, we do hit on quite a bit of judgment here, but the point of this is to cast a vision for what this messianic kingdom looks like, where God makes all things right. And then we get uh, this king that's been promised arriving in Judah, and we get a pretty classic connection to Palm Sunday here of Jesus' arrival, of them laying down their their cloaks or laying down their palm branches, all this kind of stuff of this triumphal entry. And there's 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 um, very much the the language that the, the symbolism gets picked up uh, in the New Testament on Jesus' arrival, and it, it's sort of important. Some of the language here I think really matters. I think sometimes we have this very um, picture of Jesus as um, once again this sort of um, one who's come uh, to uh, enact war and to bring his weapons, and and we need to go to battle in such a way that is. Um, really truly physical and 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 this sort of picture that sometimes is um is gravitated towards and hear me there are moments like that in scripture and in revelation there's going to be jesus returning on his his horse and and pictures like that but at the same time like one of the most central pictures the one that gets picked up of jesus here on earth doing what jesus does 
is is this is this picture of him not coming in on a war stallion, not not coming in to do his work here on Earth um, the same way that that uh, pilot would, but he's coming in on a donkey and he's coming in humble. That, that's the sort of word, the verbiage we get used, and 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 in so doing, in coming in not in the in the matter of war. That is how he's going to bring the, the bow and the chariot and the war horse to be cut off. And he's going to be pre- peace and the prisoners are going to be free and there's restoration. It's not with war might that the king is arriving. He's not, he's not, it's not the picture. He's going to drive back the enemy in the darkness and the spiritual battle that exists, but he's going to do it with people. That who's, that's who gets identified as his weapon. It's not spears and swords and, and, and armor and things like that. It is people who are going to go out as his weapon. And so it's such a different picture that um, I think sometimes we need to remember as opposed to um, sometimes this idea of, of we need to go to battle war in a non-spiritual sense. I think there's a beautiful picture here too, again, with an emphasis of peace. Jesus is, or the, you know, this coming King of Zion is speaking peace to all nations, ruling from sea to sea and mounted on a donkey. And of course we see this in Christ, but let's remember how Jesus kind of turned this idea of the kingdom upside down on its head and it is humble and it is service oriented. And there's even a reference here to the blood of his covenant. And we see that and we practice it. We remember it whenever we take communion. And God speaks of saving his people and sending them kind of back out that they will be, um, they will be the weapons of war, but they will also be sheep, uh, mm-hmm. which is such a, an interesting sort of mix of the image of sort of battle and war and yet gentle and lowly pictures. Yeah, we continue to see this messianic kingdom vision cast of what it will look like when it's all made right. God is going to protect and deliver his people and God himself will shepherd the people and the flourishing will be restored. So let's jump to Revelation. Uh, so we're still between the both books uh, dealing with uh, incredible images. And this one picks up uh, by be- introducing us to a sort of second beast. Um, and um, a number of people compare it sort of to the imperial cult uh, back in the day. That would make sense because they come out sort of as a representative of the first beast. They're calling people to worship the first beast. Uh, and so uh, there's definitely, once again, <clears throat> I think, a highlight on the pressure that probably exists, particularly in Ephesus. If John's writing from Ephesus and um, knows that culture the best, the sort of push uh, to give in and worship in pagan culture and and to participate in the life of sort of the, the pagan and Roman worship uh, at their time. And uh, we get Jewish, Jewish numerology again. The number six um, is often associated with um, sin or evil or incompleteness. Um, and the use of gematria, three of them, the, the sort of sixes, uh, is certainly a picture of sort of the whole evil, whole wickedness uh, in that, um, yeah, Yes, people have done all sorts of weird numerology to connect it to various emperors' names. It's a wonderful, fun game, but you can really do it to every single emperor name. You could even do it to Santa Claus. So there's all sorts of ways that people try to make 666 be Nero and all these kind of things. But um, it, it, it's great. It, it's fun speculation. But at the same time, uh, it's ultimately the picture of representing evil. And so um, to, to people, particularly in Ephesus, who <clears throat> we've already heard at the start of the story that have rejected the Nicolaitans, have rejected sort of the syncretism towards paganism. The encouragement, once again, is to endure in patience. You're, you're going to experience this pressure from the second beast. These people, this this group is going to try to pressure you to, to continue to, to or to desire to worship um, the, the first beast and, and don't give into it and endure in patience in, in, in the face of sort of this mounting foe in the storyline. 
I think there's an interesting connection here with this idea of a beast rising out of the earth and the number was 666. And of course, seven is represents Sabbath and represents perfection. And so as humanity rejects Sabbath, they become like beasts rather than bearing the image of God. That is one of the big differences between humanity, God's image bearers, and the animals and the beasts of the earth that he has created is they do not Sabbath like we Sabbath. But I think this is a good reminder and a stern warning to us as believers to remain vigilant. This is a picture here of a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing, and so we must be grounded in Scripture as well as grounded in Christian community so that we don't follow false teachings that initially may look like Christian teachings but are actually untrue and wicked. Yeah, and then uh, we kind of hit a transition. I f- it almost feels like John is doing um, o- almost uh, the, way, the way I can imagine, almost like a, uh, how, how modern boxing matches are. And it's almost like John's like, in, in this corner, the, the seven-headed beast, and the beast is rising out of the sea, and it's got all sorts of followers bearing the mark of the beast, and there's a second beast also rising up, and it's, it's pressuring people into all these pagan practices to worship the beast from Rome. And then we transition in chapter 14, and in this corner, the slain lamb and it's 144,000 followers bearing the mark of the lamb. And so, um, and it's interesting, even that picture of the slain, like chapter five, the lamb was the slain lamb, but now it's almost feels like it's standing triumphant. And so, um, once again, even a paradigm for these people that are experiencing persecution, they are, um, they're sort of seeing this, this picture of the one who had been, um, killed, who had been pressed down, who had been destroyed yet is still standing and standing triumphant. So, even when things look and appear like death and appear like uh, defeat, uh, ultimately in Jesus, they are triumph because this is the picture of Jesus in the story. Yeah, so we just kind of read about the people who sold out, and now we get to read about those with the name of the Father written on their foreheads, giving worship to God. And they live lives that don't sell out to the world around them, but they hold fast to biblical commands to be set apart in how they treat their bodies and also how they behave toward others. And so there is a difference. Our lives are to look different than the world around us. And as this sort of scene builds, the you've got the seven-headed monster and its whole, whole army on one side, the slain lamb and its virgin followers, and uh, it seems like a lesser number compared to the multitude that's presented, and and it feels like an unfair fight. But then the angel makes the pronouncement and and says that ultimately the the victory will be for for the slain lamb that God will ultimately have. It, it's almost like celebrating prematurely uh, the victory here uh, to say, look, this, this battle has already been, been won and sort of there's a call once again for the, for those to stand firm, to not take the mark of the beast. And it's not going to be easy. They're going to have to endure and the end, but the end is certain and there's victory at the end of it. And there may be even be death and destruction along the way. And, and maybe that's the cup connected to God's wrath for, for um, many to ha- have to take up. But uh, this picture that, um, ultimately um, endure and there's true victory on the other side. Yeah. We have these three angels coming to announce his impending judgments, but we can remember that God has offered mercy to all who accept it, who choose to fear God and give him glory. And those of us who have done that will be passed by in God's judgment. We have rest in this gift of not having to work to earn our own salvation. 
And then we get uh, an introduction once again, a, a sort of callback here of uh, arriving on the clouds like Daniel um, and God coming to bring judgment on the injustice of the world and um, this um, uh, this apocalyptic, apocalyptic imagery that John keeps picking up on, which certainly um, also has images of harvest. And that's what we get here. The image of harvest and judgment to the people um, suffering and in persecution is a, is a welcome moment. Sometimes perspective, um, we don't always have perspective uh, like they do, where if you're struggling and you're wondering if evil has won and uh, you're you're under the boot of an oppressor in some ways, the idea that judgment will show up um, is a welcome one, not one to be feared. It's it's a good thing. And, and so this picture that, um, that the harvest is going to take place and the grain harvest or the grape harvest is going to take place, which are also great Old Testament references as well. Um, and, and, and those on the wrong side of God's judgment, the, the, the harvest is going to lead to sort of the, the wine press. And there's certainly um, really dynamic images here of blood being uh, so many stadia high and it's you're, basically this flood of blood because of God's judgment is sort of the picture here. That's how intense the judgment's going to be which are pictures from Isaiah and Ezekiel and Lamentations and others and so um, but there's also sort of this feeling that there's there's harvest is coming, but it hasn't quite come yet. And as if there's moments for, for people to turn that the testimony of the martyrs before the harvest may bring some people to not experience this judgment. One of the neat things here is that the center of this vision sequence uh, is where we see the son of many, son of man gathering his harvest from the earth. And it reminds us back to Jesus, even claiming that he is the Lord of the harvest. And then uh, once again, we get just always beautiful pictures. And and one of the things that scripture certainly paints, even from page one, is that uh, water represents chaos and um, the depths and um, even Leviathan, the dragon of the sea, represents chaos and depth and um, uh, sin itself, all these sort of things. And yet before God, in, in God's presence, the sea is like glass. It is serene. It is calm. This sort of image of, of his presence there, this presence of him filling the temple with fire. All of this exists there. The people are playing the harps, which is something they hung up on their way to Babylon. Yet there's some sort of restoration, I think, happening uh, in that picture as well. Um, but that fire, that wrath that, that God has been pouring out doesn't lead to total destruction. It leads to purification. There's faithful that are left in the process and they're singing out the song of Moses, um, which um, is this very idea of of God's victory, the song about God's uh, defeat, almost as a warrior once again. Uh, and as these bowls come out, it, it kind of speaks um, that that yes, there's going to be sort of these judgments, there's going to be this suffering, it's going to be all these sort of things. But but God's also taught that look, at, part of this is that it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous, and as the plagues unfold, it, it may lead to suffering. Um, in, in to both sides, but purification for his people and judgment on people that aren't that don't belong to Jesus. Yeah, I love this idea of the song of Moses becoming the song of the Lamb in the new Exodus. And this is freeing, not just for Israel, but for all nations, because they all come to worship God because His righteous acts have been revealed. Remember, as we walk through adversity or struggle or things don't go according to plan, God is doing a work to show His glory, not just to Christians or not just to Israel, but to all nations that they may worship Him. And then we watch, uh, there's going to be seven plagues. Um, so seven's a good full number, a complete number of plagues. Um, and uh, some of the plagues have references back to um, 
the 10 plagues in Egypt. Uh, there's some connections to Isaiah and Deuteronomy and some of this as well. Um, but we should note all those stories. Like often the, the conversation around the plagues for the Israelite, like these are stories that are connected to the deliverance of his people. Uh, the plagues were a highlight. They were a, a great part of their history where God dealt with Israel's wicked enemies. And so, um, or Isaiah 8, I think it's quoted too, this sort of spoke hopefully to the people saying, look, the Assyrians are going to attack, but if you wait on the Lord, if you have patient endurance, you're going to be okay. And so we see that same instruction throughout this whole book. Uh, and then we see a reference to Armageddon, which is not just a movie uh, about asteroids coming to earth, but um, but a helpful tip, the, this is a literal valley in northern Israel. Uh, it had a history of a whole lot of major battles. Uh, Har-Megiddo uh, is the name of the, the, the valley. and so. Um, but Har-Megiddo also could be Mountain of Assembly. It's sort of the name of the area. Uh, and so I think John's utilizing both images. He has these two sides, and now he's giving us the scene, the place of the great battles where everybody has assembled, uh, and, and a, a scene, a, a backdrop of a place where major wars have taken place. It'll be fun when Jesus returns and we can look back and see how all of everything in Exodus, now we can look at it and see how it's pointing to this deliverance that we have through Christ. Uh, But it'll be fun to go back once Jesus returns and see how Exodus also points to the second coming and final judgment. Yep. And uh, so let's jump to Proverbs 12. Anything? Yeah, so in Revelation, we saw how it ends for the righteous versus how it ends for the wicked or the wise versus the fool. And Proverbs gives us a picture of the exact same thing. We want to be the people who love discipline, who obtain favor from the Lord, who serve others, who listen to advice, and who act faithfully. Yeah, and certainly there's some really good and famous kind of one-liners here, but uh, those that uh, love discipline, love love knowledge and whoever hates correction is stupid. Uh, this idea that, um, this desire to, to, to be one, uh, a wise one is one that is willing to be corrected, is willing to be, um, admonished and, and told, um, ultimately at times that, that, that where they're going is wrong, what they're doing is, is improper. And, uh, and then also lines like the fruit of their lips, uh, uh, fruit of their lips, people are filled with good things and the work of their hands brings them reward. And this idea of, of, um, speaking truth that there's uh, ultimately filling uh, in those things. And so uh, what about Psalm 48? Well, using the city of God as their inspiration, they worship God and declares glory and goodness to others, which reminds us again of God's work to glorify himself among all nations. Yeah, there's definitely some overlap with even some of what we've seen in Revelation that the mountain of the Lord really inspires sort of hallelujahs from the faithful, but fear and dread to those who oppose God. So next week. In the Old Testament, you're going to recognize quite a bit of this from New Testament references. So pay attention to that. Why do you think the New Testament writers focus so much on the book of Zechariah? And as we're in Revelation, there's going to be lots of comparisons. God who was and who is to come versus the beast who will be no longer. Or you have the prostitute of wickedness versus the marriage of the lamb. So spend some time considering these different contrasting ideas and what they mean for us even now. Yeah. And yeah, Zechariah definitely takes a bit of a turn to speak about unfaithful leaders and things like that language that does get picked up by Jesus, certainly a lot. And, um, but by others and where else, um, and maybe, maybe as you're reading through, look up some of those new Testament references, see how they're using, uh, Zechariah and what the context is. And, um, and as a language, uh, as we get through revelation, starts kind of pulling in a lot of language referring to Babylon. Uh, what would that mean for people experiencing sort of the boot, the oppression of Rome and the pagan oppression that that's sort of there? they've been 
been walking through uh, to hear sort of this this picture of of God's people versus Babylon and what God ultimately did to Babylon. Uh, and so, um, yeah, think through how that might be comforting to God's people. All right, that's it for us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.